Hello, listeners out there. This is Dr. Bernie um, doing another session today. And uh, I am here with uh, Howard Lance, who is the program manager for Global Chat Radio. And, uh, and today we're going to try and demystify what happens when um, you may be going to a clinical psychologist. I am a clinical psychologist by profession. And, uh, and often I, I do um, see the, um, just the, the sense of loss in, in my patient's eyes when they enter my consultation room because there is no uh, explanation they've been given by whoever has referred them um, as to what to expect. So I'm here with Howard who will ask me a few questions and, uh, and maybe I might be able to demystify some of those things that have stopped you from um, seeing a psychologist when you feel that you needed to. Welcome, Howard. Welcome on this Sunday afternoon in Perth. Well, thank you, Dr. Bernie, and um, thank you very much for coming in because it's not very often that we get to see an actual psychologist who's, who's actually got a doctorate <laughs> and in psychology of all things, so I feel very grateful that you've actually given up your time to come in here and talk to people and um, we thought it would be a good idea to to actually demystify what is a psychologist. Um, it's a big word and probably has all sorts of meanings to all sorts of different peoples and, and if I came, if I was let's say a refugee from um, um, I don't know, Indonesia somewhere mm -hmm. and I've lived in a, on a, um, in a in a village way beyond Jakarta somewhere or other, uh, I think I'd be scared stiff to come and see a psychologist, and, and, and why would I anyway? Yes, that's right. So let, let's start that particular journey for, say, Miss um, X, who is from a village in Indonesia, and she has been living here in Australia perhaps for a few months, maybe a year or two, but all her family are back home and she's feeling that she is perhaps um, not experiencing much energy or motivation for life. Um, and she goes to the doctor for some physical health issue, but the doctor, the GP, notices that there's something else there. So the GP would probably um, ask her, you know, what's going on? Hopefully the GP would be using an interpreter if she doesn't speak that much English. Um, and the GP would detect that there is some depression or depressive symptoms in her presentation and advise her, well, perhaps you might want to see a psychologist. Often with my patients, because psychology and counselling is not very much uh, norm in their culture, they probably would just say yes to the GP because you don't say no to a doctor in you know some cultures because they have so much authority um, and the doctor will write a mental health care plan and unfortunately there may be GPs who don't actually explain what this Miss X will expect when they go and see a psychologist so Miss X will come to me make the appointment and uh, and what I do is try and understand where she's at try and understand what she expects from the session and also explain to her what, how these sessions will unfold. So um, for some people, um, 
they're going to feel a bit awkward or a bit of discomfort because they would never have met me in their whole life. I'm a stranger to them. And in their culture, they would probably um, talk to an elder or, you know, another person within the village, within the town, someone they know, someone that might know the family and someone that they trust. But here I am who they've never met before. And I am asking them certain questions that will help me assess as to the severity of their issues or their depression or whatever it is. Um, I try and not make any conclusion uh, before that full assessment is, is completed. But, but Dr. Bernie, your training includes ways and means to make people comfortable, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It does. So you have certain strategies around that and whether somebody came from um, Mongolia or somebody come from Dalkeith here in Perth or whatever else, you would still go through that process of making feel people feel comfortable, wouldn't it? Yes, but then the difference is a person from Mongolia, uh, I would need to be more sensitive to that feeling of being in a what could be a very intimidating situation for them, as opposed to somebody who's been raised in the Western culture from Netherlands, from Claremont, whatever, and who is used to talking to um, people they've never met about their um, personal issues, maybe, because it is, you know, seeing a psychologist is not that strange within the Western culture. True. Um, the other question that springs to my mind is if um, I'm from, um, well, let's say, I don't know, Congo and, and I can only speak three words in English and I bring an interpreter with me. Does that interfere with the dynamics of, of the whole session? Because um, virtually you're talking to two people mm. and you have to trust the psychologist uh, to the interpreter. So do you prefer to choose your own or is this something you negotiate with, with the client? Or, or the of, often um, we, in the... Um, agency I work at, the interpreter is booked for the client. We try and find out whether the client needs an interpreter before the client enters the door. So um, clients and practitioners have different, I suppose, different experiences of working with interpreters. There are some practitioners who feel uncomfortable working with a, a person there that is um, you know, the third person in, in the clinical diet, so it makes it a triad. And there are some clients who would be very guarded with an interpreter in the room, simply because um, it may be a small community and they may see this person in church or, you know, at some community event. So this is why we're very, very sensitive to body language um, and anything that the client may actually um, demonstrate or say in not explicit, so much explicit terms about how uncomfortable they're feeling. And often we do pick up on, you know, the dynamics where there is a barrier between the client and the interpreter. So yes, it, it does um, introduce a longer, uh, a factor of um, a longer time when working with an interpreter. The other thing would be with um, there's certainly um, patient-client confidentiality, so their privacy is not at risk. 
and there'd have to be a similar um, agreement with the, with the interpreters. Yes. So they're, they're bound by privacy constraints as well, aren't they? They so, are, yes. So if I'm Madame X from mm. Indonesia, my record is mm. confidential and nobody has access to it. That's true. That there is Not even the GP unless I give them permission, that, is that that's, right? That's correct, yes. So there is that confidentiality. And these are the things that I usually go through with, with my um, patients because some, some don't understand or have any concept of confidentiality um, and, and, the, and the, the, the code of conduct that we need to adhere by and the interpreter needs to adhere by. And it gives them a sense of security that they can disclose anything within those four walls and it will be kept simply within the, the vault, so to speak. Okay, and another thing that just springs to my mind is if um, I've come from a, you know, a different country, different world, different culture, um, is it appropriate to sort of, let's argue, say I'll take depression as, as one example, that is depression the same thing for human beings, whether they're Caucasians, whether they're Chinese, whether they're Asians of any description, is it the same sorts of things that happen with people? Um, that's a very good question, Howard. Um, let me just talk about worldviews. Um, so whether you're from Mongolia or Indonesia or Australia for that matter, um, you have certain what we say explanatory models for why things happen to you. So for example, if one gets the common cold here in Australia, you know exactly what that behaviour will look like, what the expecta expectations are for seeking help, etc. So there are some cultures where, you know, perhaps, and I'm just using the common cold as an example, where the script or the routine for addressing the common cold or um, how to get services, when to get services, they may be quite different. So um, depression, it's how it is experienced by that person in that culture and how people within that culture actually receives or perceives the, the symptoms. That's what makes the difference. Okay, well, that's... You didn't dodge the question, which is <laughs> lovely. Um, I hadn't thought of it in terms of if it's got a cold, you've got a cold, it's still, still a cold. Yeah. So, um, because when it comes to mental health, I think some of us think it's just something that's esoteric and w it's can't be explained in everyday terms, mm. which, which you've just done. Yeah. So thank you for that. Um, now, it seems to me that what you're doing is you, you, if somebody comes in, you you sit down, you have a chat and da-da-da and you make them feel at home yeah. and all the rest of it. But when it comes to, and, you, and, you, and then you've got to work out, I, I guess one of the things you do with people is, as a general rule, get them to, you ask them what's happened to them. Yeah. Um, and, and I would imagine that you'd be one of these practitioners, you wouldn't be pointing the finger and saying, you've got this, so therefore mm -hmm. it's your fault. This would be a case of, tell your story, we'll work through whatever mm. the issues are. Now, when you come to that, do you give them... And, and is it correct to say that there's different ways of dealing with these issues for different people? How do you work that one out? It really depends on how much I understand um, the underpinnings or what, 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 what's happening in this person's world. So for a person who has come from Mongolia or the Congo or Indonesia, how did they come to this country? What were the situation that brought them here? And why, why now? 
Are they fronting up or accepting services to deal with these issues? So dealing with, um, you know, uh, different people and layering the culture um, and factoring that in is quite difficult because if if you're not sensitive to how they view things and what are what's at stake for them because what's at stake for person A from the Congo may be quite different to what's at stake for someone from an Indonesian village there may be family who um, are in the country of origin who are relying so much on this person and if it comes out that this person has a mental health issue, what happens to that family? What happens to the reputation of the family back home? So how I help them is try and understand, okay, these are the barriers um, that has stopped you from feeling better, uh, feeling that you're coping better, feeling that you're more in c control of your situation. Um, how do we overcome those barriers? And what can I do to to be culturally responsive? So it's not as if okay in Australia we we have this problem too, but and this is the solution. You can actually implement that solution well. You know, one size does not fit all. Well, this brings me to another question. So, in in some ways, from what I understand from the government, it is one size fits all in terms of you get 10 sessions or at the moment I believe it's 20 with COVID. Mm. So I would imagine if you've got people from other countries that because you've got these other barriers that come before you, before you can even get to phase one or stage mm. one, how do you get around that one? Um, yeah. Do you get extra sessions because of whatever else? How, how, what happens then? Unfortunately, no, we don't get extra sessions. Um, and I think you've, you've you know, uh, made a good point there because um, our training, you know, is very much about, okay, you get your assessment done and then you get your formulation and you start with your strategy for intervention. But for people from different cultures, it, for me, it may take two, three, four sessions longer before I get to what I'm supposed to be at by the second session if I was working with a mainstream Australian person. So no, um, we are very much, everyone gets the 20 sessions or 10 sessions, um, but I do get a lot of um, every calendar year, the patients come back because the work's not done. And it's quite a rough to do that. Mm. Mm. Um, I wondered whether you might, as part of, let's say you're in a practice, um, is one way to, 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 to handle this, would that be to offer support groups for these people? Not necessarily therapeutic support groups, but support groups where they can chat with each other? Is that one way around that? or No, it wouldn't work with people work. from different cultures, simply because of the stigma, and we talked about no, stigma okay, in our okay, last session. Enough. Yeah, yeah. So mm. that's just tragic. And, and, and is there an after-hours number if somebody gets in very, very much distress? Well, there are after-hours numbers. Um, but then, again, if you're referring to a person who doesn't have the English proficiency, they're not going to be um, picking up the phone. No, 
guess they're, they're not. So yeah, because they would need to know how to get the interpreter, or the person at the other end of the line may have to do that. So it's about, I suppose, letting people know that okay, just pick up the phone, and then someone will, you know, talk to you and have an interpreter there if you need it. But often the interpreter, if you, you know, in situations like that, you don't get the interpreter right away. Um, there's a whole, I suppose, a whole process that may take time to actually get the interpreter online. So that's where it's not as seamless as I believe it is. It should be. So this sort of just explains a little bit about what we're talking about a few sessions ago when we, when we spoke to um, one of your former clients about some gaps in the system mm, but yeah but I, I guess the other thing sometimes um, something is better than nothing isn't it it is something's better than nothing but then um, I think it needs to be a, a two-prong three-prong approach because yes you may have the service available but then what are you going to do about the stigma that's stopping access to the service what are you going to do about the cultural responsiveness of the person who is receiving the call. How's that going to be tweaked? Can we ensure it can be tweaked um, so that it can deliver a service that uh, people will say, yes, okay, I will tell the rest of my community members that I can safely, securely, confidently ring this telephone number. So it's Sometimes a bit of a can of worms because you start to talk to people and I, I would imagine from time to time you'll identify there's other needs because they've shared stuff with you that they haven't shared with some other provider. So do you have a system whereby you might come across that somebody's got a particular problem and you're able to, it's you've found out about something's going wrong and then you're able to refer them onto other mm, services? Mm. Is that part of your role? Yes, it's, it's quite common that many of the um, presentations that I get or uh, clients are referred to me for are more to do with the practical issues. Um, they're having problems with their homes, um, their accommodation, um, welfare payments are not coming through. So many of my clients don't really understand that system. And sometimes when you know things stop being paid or letters come in the mail and the, you know they're facing eviction for some reason or whatever of course you're going to feel a bit um, anxious <laughs> a lot anxious actually because you don't know what's happening you don't understand because you don't have the language and you don't know where to go to get the help or the advocate so it would be a, um, a reactive kind of um, depressed depression and once you, 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 what I do is, yes, I call in those people that understand how to navigate that particular part of the system and they work with my client. I keep seeing them. And then, you know, you, you sort of see a reduction in that stress. And then you can, you can start working on what, are there any other real issues that are not affected by all these stressors? Well, I would imagine doing this sort of work would have to be very exhausting. It is. More, <laughs> more so than standard um, practice. So you must be absolutely dedicated. Oh, it is It is challenging. Um, 
exhausting sometimes because I think as the person on the other side, um, I, I am aghast to hear some of the stories as to why the simplest of considerations have not been thought about by our system, the service by the service providers who actually are trying to attract, um, you know, um, clients from different cultures to access their services. Now, at the risk of putting you on the spot, are you able to give us, without identifying the person, a story of somebody that, a success story of somebody that came in to see you and and, and you're able to um, help them through on their journey? So I guess what I'm um, asking for is, are you able to give us a story of a success story of, of one of your one of your people? Oh, okay. Um, I could give you a hybrid story. Um, no, no, so it's 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 a, it's pieces of you know maybe two, three, four different previous clients of mine. I, I just wanted to get an idea. So that if, if somebody's listening to this. If they came in to see it, they might not fully understand what we're saying. Mm. But if we're able to give some sort of an example of some of the things that can happen because they've come to see you and, and they've dealt with whatever the issues are that, that have... Or they've told their mm. story and they found out a different strategy or way of dealing with something or other. Mm. So to give them a bit of a, a, um, a pointer. Yeah. What so, might happen. Uh, so just let me go back a couple of steps. Um, when someone sees me... Um, and, and this goes for any psychologist or clinical psychologist. There are often skills that we identify, all right, they need skills in this, that, or the other to be able to manage the stress in their life and adapt better to um, certain challenges in their life. So with skills learning comes confidence. Um, and then they have, obviously, through the sessions, more clarity in, in a direction that they want to, to go towards. So, for example, there are some mothers who come to me and, uh, and they don't really know what's happening in their family, why it's imploding. And, uh, and they may be mothers of, you know, um, three, four, five children of different ages, one in their late teens, early teens, etc. Um, and what they don't understand is that, you know, as time progresses, there's a bit of distancing by the children from the traditional culture, the ways that one usually does things in the culture. So I try to explain to them, okay, this is, this is possibly what's happening. So trying to get them to see, all right, it's not, it's not anything hostile. It's, um, it's just one of the process of what we call acculturation and we all move through this process in different speeds, different times. Um, and, and trying to communicate in a different way with the, with the children. So, and, and, and receiving their communication with, with a new outlook. So one of the, I suppose, one of the hybrid you know, success stories is that you know, some mothers have been able to do that and they're able to better understand what's going on in their family, uh, learning new skills, uh, how to, to manage whatever challenges that the kids bring and not to, I suppose, impose some of the traditional values on 
the kids when they're trying to find their own identity about being Australian, uh, uh, you know, half Australian, half um, Indonesian maybe. So their identity is also changing and trying to just support this exploration by their kids. Oh, well, thank you. So mm. I think you've given us quite a good idea. Um, um, it, it seems to me that very much of what you do is very much centred around what the actual... I hesitate to use the word patient or consumer, or I'm not sure what. I don't what, know what, what to what, use what, either. The best language, no. But, but the person that's coming to see you, it's very much, it's the, the way you look after them or treat them. Uh, I, I hesitate to use the word treat, but but help them or assist them. Yeah. It, it's very much centered around their specific needs. It's not like you're trying to put people in a little box and make them little Aussies. No. That's not your goal no. at all. It's to make the person. Well, let's, what, what, what would you say that your aim is? My aim is to to um, to walk with them. I think to walk with them to um, understand their cultural values um, and to be mindful that I'm not imposing, you know, the, the 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 my own values or the mainstream Australian values on them, because at the end of the day, I see my work as putting everything out on the table and giving them um, insight into the choices that they, they do have, okay? And, uh, and basically, it is about opening their eyes that there are certain pathways that they have access to and uh, walking with them rather than, yes, uh, walking ahead of them. Well, I get a strong sense. This is I could summarise this if I if I if I if can be rude, or it's, it's probably a bit presumptuous of me. But what I'm getting from you is that it's about empowering people. Yes, it is about empowering people. But then I I always see that uh, the clinical relationship that I have with my clients is is always about teamwork, and uh, and there is a um, a saying that a, a dear friend has actually allowed me to use which um, his father gave to him and uh, I think it makes sense in this particular context so if you want to um, go fast you go alone if you want to go together you go slow and that really does strike a chord when working transculturally with these clients that I do have or patients well thank you Dr. Bernie I think you've covered this quite well and hopefully um, anybody listening to this today and they're hesitant about yes about seeing psychologists psychologists that they feel a little bit more um, less uh, apprehensive about yes and um, and we're not here to judge uh, and I think I can I can speak that for all that on behalf of all my peers out there it's it is a safe environment and, uh, and I do hope if you listeners need to see a psychologist or talk to somebody about whatever it is that you're going through, it's, um, it's not as daunting as one might have you think. Well, thank, thank you very much. Okay, Howard, thank you. So this is Dr. Bruni signing off for this session, and I look forward to joining you again in our next session.